welcome to the Resilient Birth Podcast. Hi, I'm Justine. And I'm Sarah. On this podcast, we navigate the world of trauma in the perinatal period, both personally and professionally. Justine and I believe what is uniquely beautiful about this podcast is that the you as our listener can be the perinatal professional or the you who desires to have a family, has a family, or may have lost children. We hope you can find what you need as you listen, connect with our vulnerability, and feel witnessed in others' experiences. We talk about trauma on this podcast, so please take care of yourself and meet yourself with kindness and grace. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Birth Podcast. I'm so excited to have another week together um, and to hear what Justine is bringing in for us today to dialogue and think about and to just reflect on deeply. I'm excited too. And um, yeah, I think this is going to be a good one. This one really spoke to me. I was uh, reading an article and it's a relatively recent article. The main author is Joanne Cull, who is doing a PhD in the UK, I believe. And they basically synthesized 25 papers over the last 20 odd years from five different countries, looking at survivors giving birth and what their experiences are and what they need from their providers to give them trauma-informed care. And they had some really, I think, just interesting things that, that came out in the article, but there was one sentence that really spoke to me because on the one hand, I'm like, oh, it's so obvious. And on the other hand, it really bears saying out loud, but it also spoke to, I think, how you and I practice with our clients and how we also teach when we're working with providers, whether that's uh, midwives or nurses or doulas, to educate around trauma-informed care. It really speaks to to the kind of message that we're trying to impart. And, And I thought it was just yeah, exactly. That's that's it. That's what we that's what we need. So anyway, this is the quote from this review paper that they did. Our review highlights specific areas of training which are necessary for maternity care professionals. The focus of trauma discussions, so these are my words now, just to kind of clarify what trauma discussions are in, in the context of this paper. They're talking about primarily when a midwife might have a discussion about previous trauma that uh, a pregnant woman, the papers that they looked at were were all papers that studied women. A pregnant woman would potentially want to have, need to have, so a discussion about her previous trauma with her midwife, and this is in the UK, so people who are giving birth in the UK primarily work with a midwife rather than an OB, but it could be with an OB as well, so or instead of. So it's, it's whoever your, your provider is having that discussion about previous trauma. And so that's what they mean by trauma discussions. So sorry, going back to the quote, our review highlights specific areas of training which are necessary for maternity care professionals. The focus of trauma discussions should not be eliciting specific details of past trauma, but rather ascertaining what resources support, and or adjustments to the care plan would be helpful. It is important that women are forewarned of the discussion, including any limits to confidentiality, and that disclosure of past trauma is entirely voluntary. And the sentence that I just want to highlight in particular, which I just think is so 
clear and also really speaks to the way in which I think we practice is the focus of trauma discussions should not be on eliciting specific details of past trauma, but rather ascertaining what resources, support, and or adjustments to the care plan would be helpful. And I recognize that if you are a therapist who is maybe helping to support a client by going into that past trauma and pulling out the the pieces of it that need to be spoken or, or be brought into that relationship, then that's a different story. But if you're like me, and I'm not currently a therapist, if you are a doula, if you are a midwife, if you are a birth worker, whose job it is not really to to heal somebody else's trauma, then that doesn't mean that trauma discussions should be off the table. It shouldn't be that you should be afraid to have that conversation. And that this approach of exploring what needs to change in the care plan, what needs to happen to support this individual through the birthing process or through postpartum or through the rest of their pregnancy. That is such a wonderful piece of the work that we do. And I know, Sarah, that in your therapy work, that's also part of the work that you do with your clients. Mm -hmm. It's not just that exploration of what happened, but also what do we need now? What does this client need now and what are their needs coming up for giving birth and for going into early parenthood so i'm wondering just you know what what are your basic thoughts on what i've just been sharing yeah i am a therapist who in how i was trained in trauma therapy and how i approach therapy i am also one who deeply believes that my clients don't need to give me any of their story to heal if they want to share That is a true gift and honor to be able to be one of those trusted people who gets to hold that sacred part of them that's been woven into their cloth and and defines and shapes parts of who they are, but that my clients don't need to do that in order to put one foot in front of the other and start walking down the path they want to walk on. And the reason why I have firmly grounded myself in that belief is I feel like when you express that to a client and let them know, you shift the power dynamic in the therapeutic space. I'm not going to push you to explore or share details or facts with me that your body is not ready or ever maybe needs to give out vocally in this world. Am I going to help you live within your body while you maybe experience things that are deeply connected to that thread in your life? Yes. But my number one goal is to have you feel safe within yourself by creating a safe space in my therapeutic space with you, which means come in as how you need to be and share within your power and not asking them to go back beyond that safety. It doesn't mean I don't push clients to examine and explore, but they take the driver's seat in the story that they want to give. Mm-hmm. I just want to sit with your words for a moment because I feel as though they just really, she find them really moving because what a gift is that to give to someone to say, you know, like I don't need everything in order for this to work. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that, that I'm moved by it is, is because the therapist that has had the most impact on my life was someone who 
who gave that to me and she had different words for it. She was a very different therapist from the therapist that I imagine you to be, Sarah. <laughs> but she gave me the same thing, which was power, my power, the power to speak or not speak as I chose, to say it or not say it, and to notice what was happening within me as I made those choices. And I think that that willingness actually to allow things not to be spoken mm -hmm. is a real, it's a real gift and it's also hard, right? And I think that that's partly to do with who we are as human beings. We're naturally curious people and we want to know that also that we're being effective. And sometimes what is out there is more easily assessed than what is going on maybe internally. Yeah. And so I think, I think it can be hard. And I think it can be hard when, you know, just thinking about those other professionals who work with birth givers, these conversations are difficult conversations. This paper actually talks about the impact on midwives and other birth workers of having these conversations. And the conversations are also hard if you're not trained in how to go about them. If you're just expected to bring up trauma at some random appointment, or if you are expected to take in some paperwork and there's the box checked for a previous trauma history or an assault history, and then you're expected to do something with that, but you haven't been trained in what that conversation would look like, in how to raise it in a safe way, how to hold space for what might come up. And on the flip side, I'm thinking too of the damage that is done when somebody checks that box and nothing changes. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about the this paper that Joanne Cull has authored is that she is then going on to develop some principles for trauma-informed practice in maternity care settings. And one of those recommendations is not to have a form that you fill in where you would check that box, but instead for trauma to be raised in conversation with a trusted provider within a trusted relationship, and that there should be small regular opportunities for that conversation to take place or be taken up so that there is this low-key invitation for these deeper discussions rather than, all right, here we go, this is the trauma week, <laughs> which can also feel quite unsafe. She has a, actually a load of really interesting principles that, that she's developing. It is interesting work and it makes me reflect on one, the complexity of working with clients who have walked with trauma, particularly if you also are a provider or clinician who walks with trauma mm. yourself, and also to honor that the world is filled with different people who connect with different types of modalities and different ways to support and help people. So for me, it works really well to do that kind of therapy where I am coming at it from the approach that like the healing all comes from within and they don't need to share with me. And... So I'm training in EMDR, I'm looking to get trained in IFS. So these are the modalities that speak to me and to my core values. But someone may be really strongly into like CBT or DBT. And, and I think when you're sitting across from someone who's experienced trauma, being your authentic self and meeting them in the modalities that feel like they align with who you are as a person is also a gift that that person needs in front of you. 
because when we've worked with someone with trauma or when someone has experienced trauma, it can be really hard to like gain trust and to gain trust in your instincts about someone else. So if you show up as a provider or clinician as yourself, secure and confident in how you practice and the skills and the assets you bring to the table, you are allowing the person that's sitting across from you, your client to assess, is this what works for me? Thank you for showing up as your authentic self. And can you be the person who walks this journey with me? Or maybe you can help me find the person who can. And that's what I always end my first session with. I ask anybody who meets with me the first time to take 48 to 72 hours, think about like, am I who you want to walk this healing journey with? My only goal is to get you to be on that journey you're asking. And if it's not me, then let me help you find that person who is. Mm-hmm. Because that's my wish and my hope. And I think if we can stay grounded in who we are, then we can be able to give over more power to our clients too, because we're confident in the gifts that we're bringing. We hold on to power when we doubt, when we think we're not good enough. And so sometimes we do need to let a client go because maybe we're not a good match or maybe we don't have the skill set that they need, but letting go is just as important as walking with. I wonder, Sarah, whether you could just take a moment to to briefly describe what EMDR and IFS, CBT, DBT are, because I think for some of our listeners, those acronyms are not necessarily very clear in in their minds. So I just wonder if if you could just take a moment to briefly kind of give us an overview of what each of these modalities actually are. Yeah. So EMDR utilizes the belief that our bodies want to naturally move towards healing. And using eye movements or tapping, tapping into the bilateral parts of our bodies, you activate the parts of the brain that allow someone to like process through a memory to let the brain and body go to that state of natural healing. Almost like uh, Dr. Shapiro talks about like when you cut your hand, you don't have to tell your hand to heal itself. Your hands just knows what to do. And she deeply believes that our brains know what to do as well. And they want to move into that state of healing. And so through this work with an EMDR therapist, by stimulating the different bi- uh, bilateral stimulation within your body um, at a fast pace, you are encouraging the brain and allowing it to process through and move towards that state of healing. IFS is another more strength-based approach, which looks at the different parts that we have inside of us that maybe form as protective parts along our our life and our journeys and how we have this self. And then these other parts come in and step into these roles when maybe these parts of our stories get activated and that sort of thing. And Dr. Schwartz also deeply believes that these parts have a good intent. They showed up to protect or serve us in some way. And maybe now in our life, when we're maybe in a safer state, they don't need to be so hypervigilant or as protective. But if we give them the space to heal, they can be these really beautiful, productive parts of our mind, body, and spirit. And so again, it's another strength-based approach that like these parts aren't bad. They just haven't been looked at and given that spot to heal. And when we do ask these parts what they would want to be instead of this protective nature, it leans into this really beautiful, like I've had some parts say, just want to be free and, and sit in the sunshine. And when you hear that from this part that you think has been hurting, you're like, well, who doesn't want to sit in the sunshine? I want more in that in my life. Like, let me help you heal. So it's a like a really beautiful therapy that looks at that. 
And then CBT and DBT are more, uh, definitely more evidence in like research based because you can look at negative thoughts, you can do the exercises. And so they can be incredibly helpful, particularly for someone who is more in that brain kind of thinking. And, and, and that's the way that their path to healing is. And so I do actually use some CBT with some of my clients sometimes to like really have them look at those negative thought patterns. And DBT has a lot of like reflective exercises in it that help you look within and really write about yourself and 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 look at how maybe you can rest, pause and and, and stop before you have an action happen. And it, it helps provide you with tools to like stop before maybe you might react or do something. So they're really helpful skills. And I think clinicians who are moved to those, I'm happy that works for them because they can be really effective. I have just gravitated towards ones that speak more to my heart space, but I have looked into all these modalities and I can see where they have their place in the therapeutic world. Mm -hmm. And that different people will gravitate towards different modalities because we are different and our brains are different and we have different experiences and we have different goals from therapy or we have different goals from, again, our relationship with a doula or our relationship with our midwife, our relationship with our OB. People are unique. It comes out in this paper that that I've been talking about today. Some people found the conversation difficult. Some people didn't share. Some people didn't want to to share with their provider. And one of the recommendations that she has coming out of that is that information about trauma and birth or trauma and in the perinatal period and the impact of being someone who walks with a history of trauma or potential impact of that on this experience should just be part of the information that gets shared in prenatal meetings, that everyone should have access to this information because you don't know whether someone is a survivor or not, and you don't know whether they're going to share or or not share. And that information should just become part of our general knowledge, the practitioner's general knowledge, and also the the women and, and the birth givers who, who are wanting to have a, a safe and, and joyful, as joyful as possible experience. So we are all so different. We need different things and we need different things from different people. That's something else that I think you and I feel quite strongly about and and how we, we practice with our clients is helping them to think through, what do I need from myself? What do I need from my partner? That's going to be completely different from what I need from my OB or my midwife. It's going to be different from if I hire a doula, what I need from them. And I think quite often when we think of like birth plan or a plan for giving birth or any other experience in this journey, we think that it can be one document for everyone. <laughs> that or Not even necessarily a document. It can be just like one set of ideas about birth that you share with your partner or you discuss with your partner and you discuss it with your OB as though those conversations are the same. But in actual fact, it's crazy to think that what we need from our loved one would be the same as what we need from our OB or our midwife. Not least of which one of them has experience in helping people give birth and the other one maybe has limited or no experience in that process. Yeah. And I think one of the things I I love about the plans that we help create with our clients is I really push my clients to look at at the strengths of those 
around them. So if one of the things that drew you to your partner was their like silly side that they bring out when they can tell you're nervous, let's bring that into the birthing space because that's a strength. That's something that drew you to them. That's something that you feel connected to them with. Let's not try and shoehorn them into a role that is not them. Let the supports in the room be who they want to be, which is why when we develop the the birth plan for the birth support plan for like medical providers, it has all these different suggestions. And maybe the nurse in the space upholds four out of the five because that matches who they are and aligns with their personhood and their value system and what they're emotionally connected to, where there'll be your midwife connect with like four, seven, and eight, because that's what aligns with them. And so we collectively come together to see where we can meet them while authentically providing what is within our wheelhouse. Oftentimes I have a client be like, I wish my partner could help me with birth movements and positioning my body. And it's like, well, how experienced is your partner in that? And they're like, well, they don't have any experience. And you're like, well, what do you need in these moments now before you give birth for them to feel educated enough to do this? Or is there someone else in the space who you can have take on that role and then they can step into roles they already have right now in front of you? That's really powerful. Just think about like if your partner was able to work with you based on what they're already good at doing and the confidence that that then gives them that I've had this experience with clients of mine where particularly when I'm meeting with a couple, because quite often the work that I do, I meet with both the person who's giving birth and their partner at the same time. So what the person who's giving birth wants from their partner is often sort of spoken in the moment right there and then. And what has been surprising so often for partners is that they think coming into these meetings that what's going to be expected from them is help giving birth. They have to physically know what to do, be there to help, to take the pain, particularly because that's what the mentality is of most people, is that this is going to be a painful experience. There's a lot of fear around the the sensations of contractions and that the partner is going to either take it away or somehow make that manageable for their loved one. And the partner comes into those meetings with a lot of fear because they're like, I don't know how to do that, (laughs) right? I am not experienced in birth. I maybe never attended a birth before. Maybe I've you know, have with the previous children, but maybe I felt a bit like a deer in the headlights and I didn't really know what to do. And now it's all happening again. And then when we start to talk about what the person who's giving birth wants from their partner, you can just feel the relief often because they start to think, oh, you, you, you want me to show you that I care. You want me to do that thing that I do when you're, when you're not feeling well. Oh, I I know how to do that. I do that all the time. Oh, you want me to laugh? You want me to see the funny side in things? I'll have a client who who has anxiety and I say, you know, what helps when, when you have anxiety? And she'll say, oh, when my husband bakes me cupcakes and we sit and watch a movie together or something, I don't know. And we talk about what does that mean and what does it do? And, and then they start to see, okay, there are things that I could do, like that distraction piece or that piece of whatever it might be. I do that anyway. That's why we're together. I just have to bring myself into this relationship that birth is still taking place within the context of this relationship that I am invested in. And I don't have to 
know how to do the double hip squeeze and get it right because I don't know how to do that. So that feels very stressful. But actually being a connected, loving partner is something that I do on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I think when we take a second to honor and look at our needs, it makes me reflect on your quote with the word resources, because when we hear that word resources, so often we think of external, like, you know, oh, can we send you to this website to give you this information? Or can I connect you with this person? And when I hear the word resources, I think about what already lives within my client mm-hmm. that they just maybe haven't touched on in a bit or connected with in a while, or that they've lost sight of, particularly because of their trauma. So in those meetings with them, I remind them that everything that they need to know already lives within them. And through our work and our, through our questioning, we explore these experiences to now uncover and peel away and connect back to those resources that have ever been present. I think about clients who I've worked with who've had trauma happen to them as a child. And I remind them that that little child got up and ate breakfast the next day and went to school and did all the things without anyone telling that that child to be strong, to keep going. Inside you already lives a part that knows how to put one foot in front of the other. So how do we, in these moments, connect back to these resources that have always been inside of you and put them on this page so your partner, their present, your providers can give you what you need in the space and you can give yourself what you need. Mm. And that's what really shook me when you said resources, because I just was reminded of the, the deep, deep resources that my clients internally hold, which I just have just forgot. And I think that that is so important to highlight because quite often when we receive resources what we get and this has been my experience recently um, particularly with trying to get help for my children at the moment is we get a a printed piece of paper that's been photocopied maybe a thousand times kind of grainy that has the national helplines and maybe some non-profit organizations that we then are expected to go and reach out to, most of which are not necessarily actually relevant to our own specific situation. And so they're kind of like got this kind of catch-all. They're maybe not local. And some of them likely have closed down or are no longer supporting people in my situation anymore for whatever reason because it has been five years or six years or 10 years since this document was produced. And that is giving resources. And what I love about what you've just shared is the idea that resources, and of course, external resources are important. I don't want to deny that. But also resources live within us that don't get old, that don't get photocopied away into illegibility that are still relevant to us and that can't be taken away. And and I wonder too, how we can also help make those resources that are external be better or be at, you know, consistently at that level where they are actually useful rather than just, how do I put it? I can't put it politely, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> And I'm thinking of also when I'm when I was pregnant with with my my second child and uh, had this conversation with one of the midwives at the practice. I was giving birth in 
hospital in the Boston area in Massachusetts. And there was a practice of midwives. It was quite a large practice. Uh, it was, I think, about 25. But you would consistently see one midwife, but sometimes you would you would meet with others as well. Anyway, so I was meeting with someone that I didn't normally meet with, and my history came up, particularly the history of the previous birth and, and how that had been fairly traumatic for me. And they had a, an in-house nurse practitioner who was also doing, forget the word, like a, I forget the, the title of, of what um, her title was, a, a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So she, she was doing uh, mental health support as well as, um, or was just trained in mental health support. She asked me if I would like to see her. And I said, yeah, like that would be, that would be great. So I had a very positive reaction to that. And she said, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pop on the phone right now and see when she might be available to meet with you. She got on the phone, had a chat with this nurse practitioner. The nurse practitioner was just down the hall. It turned out that she could just sort of like pop in and say hello and introduce herself. And we set up an appointment for later. And it all, like that resourcing felt very easy for me. It felt very natural and it felt very, very friendly. And everything was with my consent. It wasn't overbearing for me. I felt very resourced. So in, in comparison to the sheet of paper that I got recently, that was basically like, here you go, sort yourself out. We wash your hands of you. Mm-hmm. And I think about your pondering of like, what can external resources do to be better supportive of our clients? And I think of not look at our clients as potentially like broken mm-hmm. or harmed or damaged or diagnosis and look at the person across from you as someone who has needs and who has inside of them all the answers to what they need and they just need support pulling it out and helping the dialogue. And so if you are an external resource. If you can sit with someone and just give them the grace of this is a human across from you. This is a person. This is a person who's growing something inside their body or, or has a desire to grow something inside their body and honor how Think of a moment that is for this person and meet them in that emotionality through that connection. That's when you can help them unearth these strengths that I'm talking about by just being in their presence. I was reflecting on this with a client and thinking about the power dynamic in lots of different situations. And I was thinking about how unnatural it probably feels, particularly to someone's trauma, to go into a doctor's office, particularly an OB or a midwife, and be asked to take off your clothes. For someone who you have maybe never met, never talked to, and now you are extremely vulnerable. And to just because you have medical training that you have the right to bear witness to someone's body without really meeting them or building their trust first. And how backwards in some ways that felt to me. Like, shouldn't that first meeting be closed and and building a relationship? Wouldn't that be a good step for every person, not just someone who experienced trauma? And and the asks we have of people that the medical field feel so natural for them and so expected. But when you take a step back and look at it from like a farther lens, if you said to me, hey, Sarah, I want you to come over for coffee today and you have to put on this cloth and mm-hmm. be naked underneath it. I would be like, I'm not coming to your house. Like, who are you? Yeah. Right. 
But the expectation is there is no no to that. Like I expect to come into this room and have you be in this paper cloth ready for an examination when I have not even introduced myself and met you as a person. Mm-hmm. So maybe external resources start meeting people as a person yeah. before they start treating them. Mm-hmm. I had a really interesting experience with my last pregnancy and birth because I moved countries and I came to the UK for two um, births in the US and then one in, in the UK. And that first meeting, she was not interested in my vagina at all. Just wasn't even, didn't seem to even occur to her that that would be an ask that she would make. And I was reflecting as you were talking and I was trying to remember, and I'm pretty sure that I did not receive one vaginal exam throughout my whole pregnancy. And that was not because I was a survivor. It was just kind of standard that they didn't feel the need, like unless there was a, I mean, I'm sure that they would if there was an indication, for example, if I went into preterm labor or something like that. So I'm I'm sure that there are times in pregnancy when you might get an exam, if there was some kind of indication that there might be an issue, or if you had some history of something, and how different that was to be in a system where the expectation wasn't that that you would necessarily need that, or that that would be a thing that you should just be okay with. And I think we have to really look at what are we doing as standard practice that is more information gathering rather than resourcing, mm-hmm. ticking boxes, because that's how it's practiced. Or is it is it an exam where you can present to your patient why it is that you are asking for it, and then let them decide whether or not that information is something that they feel is important for them to have. So if you are doing an exam, which I mean, like I had exams in that first meeting with my midwives in the US, the hospital-based midwives would do a, a pelvic exam on that initial appointment. And I don't think they ever told me why. What were, the, what were they looking for? What were they checking? And what would that information mean for me and my care, what that information would mean in terms of the kind of ongoing care that I would receive? Were they looking for specific problems that could impact this pregnancy? Were they just wanting a kind of general baseline of where my cervix was at for some reason? Then, right? Like, So what was the, what is the reason? And I don't think I was ever given that reason and given the option after thinking about that reason given them the option to say, yeah, I think that's worth it or no, it's not really worth it for me. I would like to, to refuse the exam. And how powerless you are then, because you don't even know how to say, uh, hold on a second, this is kind of weird. Like you want to examine me and I've just met you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Justine and I want to honor that we don't have a medical background and we don't have the same medical knowledge that an OB, a nurse, a midwife might have. And we're not saying to stop it, doing exams or, or shift practice, but maybe it's shift how it's done. I know that we only have these pretty much 20 minutes for a meeting someone, but what if you spent the first 10 minutes with them clothed on that first meeting, getting to know them, building rapport, and then you step out 
after they've consented to getting into that little yeah, room. They know why. Just they know, know why. why. What's coming up? What steps yeah. are going to happen? Because I know for me, I feel even though I don't really feel unsafe in a gynecological exam, it still feels uncomfortable to be sitting there in a cold room naked being like well what is going to happen to me today what what exam you know are they going to check in my breast and not knowing but already being vulnerable and ready to be examined at any moment just feels maybe a little bit beyond too far for someone's comfort level knowing sitting in a space and hearing like okay, we have to do the breast exam today because we like to do this to make sure we can chart where we see these lumps we can check for changes and then here's why we think we want to examine your cervix today. How about while you're changing to the gown, you can reflect on which exams you want to happen. Because maybe someone can't do two in one day too. Like maybe that feels like too much. So like giving someone that pause to decide if they want to take off their clothes, if they want to open themselves up to that kind of exam today, or maybe they can only do one, or maybe they want their partner to come back with them because they can't do it by themselves in the space. But that more time to breathe, but building that relationship, that trust, that security. We don't have the right to anyone's body or story mm-hmm. until someone's consented for us to hold it, no matter what license we hold. So true. I mean, it's just we don't have that right. And people don't have to, people don't have to give it to us. And we need to honor that going back to this very start of this conversation that sometimes that that story will not be shared with us but a story is still being held within that person even if we have snippets of somebody's story we don't hold it all so we need to honor that we may not know what they need in the moment right like they may not know what they need we may not know what they need but we need to honor that something can be held in another human being that is very, very difficult. And in these moments of intense vulnerability, whether it's in, in during an exam or during pregnancy or during birth, that we need to honor and hold the mystery of that and honor that, that here is a person doing their very best and our tread upon their life should be as kind and as gentle and as holding as we can make it. And that what we can give so often is an attempt to shift some of that power dynamic. So as Sarah was saying, instead of expecting somebody to be sitting there naked with like just a paper towel across them, and then expect them to feel any kind of power in that position that we allow people to stay closed and then we we articulate the choice to them of what might be their options now. Give them knowledge and we articulate the choice to them so that there is that giving over of power and we don't know how someone might respond or whether they need certain things from us, but we don't need to know that, right? We don't need to know the story. Going back to, to the quote at the beginning, we don't need the story to provide trauma-informed care. We don't need to know what happened to somebody to understand that trauma impacts people's lives in all kinds of ways and that anyone can be someone who has a history of trauma. Mm-hmm. And that people with histories of trauma might need certain kinds of care and that we can ask them to reflect upon what they might need and give them choice. Yeah. 
Thank you for a beautiful discussion today, bringing in such a poignant quote to reflect on. I think my main takeaway that I'm going to be walking away with today is that reminder to show up in that space as you are, as the provider, the clinician, as a doula, midwife, nurse, OB. Be yourself and be proud in the gifts that you bring to the space. And through that being, allow your client to bear witness to that so then they feel safe to bring themselves in and to honor that when they both allow that to happen in the space, that's when we start to walk together and with each other. But it starts from you being grounded in yourself and your own practice. I think what I'm taking away, so I'm taking away a couple of things. One is I've been reminded that resources exist within our clients and that one of the gifts of the work that we do is to help people uncover those resources. And although I know that, I am grateful for the reminder because I'm working with someone at the moment and I've been holding some questions about what is it that I feel would be useful for our conversation next week and and just really feeling quite unsure about the direction that I want to invite that conversation to go. And, and I'm thinking, actually, this is one of the reasons that I'm questioning is maybe because we haven't done enough work on that resourcing piece and on, the, on that exploration of what those are and that's why it's actually feeling a little uncertain to me so i'm, I'm grateful for that and then I'm, I'm also grateful for the reminder that we can really focus on what are the strengths of the people who are going to be supporting what are their resources and help to draw those out so that's what i'm grateful from this conversation thank you so much and i hope that listeners at home are, are taking away some some interesting thoughts from our discussion today thank you thank you next time thank you for listening to this podcast episode and if you liked today's content please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and share with a friend or colleague if anything came up for you on today's episode please take a moment today to take care of yourself reach out to some supports in your community and if necessary reach out to a local mental health professional